21-year-old man was taken to the hospital for treatment of minor injuries a while ago after being trapped waist-deep in a vat of chocolate for two hours. The man, an employee of DeBellis Corporation, a company that supplies chocolate ingredients, told police that he stepped into the tank of molten chocolate to unplug it. He became stuck, however, and soon sunk up to his waist in chocolate. The man's co-workers and local police and firefighters tried to pull him loose from the chocolate, but couldn't free him until the chocolate was thinned out. One police captain commented, it was pretty thick, it was virtually like quicksand. (laughs) Well, being stuck waist deep in a vat of liquid chocolate sounds heavenly to chocolate lovers. (laughs) But even too much chocolate can be too much of a good thing. We live in a culture of excess. All you have to do is look at the headlines, the entertainers, and the basketball stars, and all of these people, and the salaries they command, and the lifestyles that they live. But it's not just them. We live in a culture of excess. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Everything in moderation is the message of wisdom. Everything in moderation. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning, we pick up in our study with verse 15. And here we learn, first of all, that the fear of God leads us to live in moderation. Verse 15, Ecclesiastes 7. I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous, and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let go of the other. For the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Now, Solomon begins with an observation about life that really runs counter to what we expect. We expect, by we, I mean the average person in life, we expect that good people will live long lives, and that bad people will die young. Most people assume that if you are good, you will be rewarded by God for your goodness. And if you're bad, then God should judge you for your badness in this life. I mean, that's kind of the rule of retribution that the average person lives by. It's the moral law that people expect to be played out in life. God will reward me if I'm good. He will make me successful. I will get ahead in life. 
and God will judge those people who are bad. And they'll get what they deserve. If that's not true, why bother being good in this world? That's what most people expect. And you've had conversations with people, I think, that reflect that philosophy. But Solomon says he has observed just the opposite many times. He has observed good people who die before their time and bad people who live long and seemingly successful lives. Look around at the world. The headlines today, how long have some of these dictators like Gaddafi been in power? Forty years. Solomon says, I look around in my lifetime of futility and I see exactly the opposite of what I would expect. What's with that? How are we to deal with that reality? Now, once again, in order to understand the argument of Ecclesiastes, you have to go to the end of the book and take everything in the light of that conclusion that he draws at the end. So in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, let's just rehearse for ourselves his conclusion. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So Solomon concludes, when he's done all of this process, he concludes that we should leave the judgment to God. God will deal with these things. God will deal with this reality. God will judge both the good and the evil in this world. That day will come. Leave that judgment to God and follow him in life. All right. Now, with that conclusion as the background, we come back to our question. Because Solomon doesn't really directly address the question. Instead, he changes the answer to reflect the practical application to our lives. How should we then live on this earth knowing that God will judge and we can leave that judgment to him in his time? How then should we live on this earth? The practical question has to do with how we should live now while we leave the judgment to God. And Solomon warns us against two extremes in life. We are to avoid both extremes. The two extremes to avoid are, first of all, don't depend on your own goodness. And secondly, don't live a loose life. He warns against being overly righteous in verse 16 and against being overly wicked in verse 17. And then in verse 18, he tells us to grasp the first warning and don't let go of the second warning. Avoid both extremes. I like the way the NIV actually translates the summary point in verse 18. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes in life. In other words, the man who fears God will live in moderation because God will judge the good and God will judge the evil in his time. Now, the second warning 
certainly makes sense, the warning of verse 17. We would expect the Bible to tell us not to be excessively wicked, right? That makes sense. That's what we expect. Now, now I might point out, however, that Solomon is not suggesting that we can be a little wicked. (laughs) Just don't be excessively wicked. (laughs) That's not his point. He knows we're all wicked anyway. From a practical standpoint, however, in terms of just your lifestyle, we should not pursue wickedness as a lifestyle. We should not be overly wicked. We should not then live a loose life. And that makes sense. I don't think most of us in this room have a problem with that side of it. But what about that other side of it in verse 16? I want to focus on that a little bit. Because I think most people who go to church and try to live decent lives have a harder time with the verse 16 side of this whole debate or this argument. What does he mean by saying that we should not be overly righteous? And then he adds, don't be overly wise either. If we're not supposed to be bad... Shouldn't we be as good as we can be then? I mean, doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't we be zealous for righteousness and goodness? Solomon's answer is no. And that's somewhat surprising to most of us, I think. But it's because when we pursue righteousness ourselves... Goodness in this way, it does something to us. We become sanctimonious. And worse, we become sanctimonious snobs. We become filled with our own goodness. And lots of people try to be good and become filled with their own goodness. We come to depend on our own goodness And that, Solomon says, is bad. Now, the righteousness he is talking about here is human external righteousness. Let's let's just deal with this theological question for a minute. It's not the righteousness that God imputes to us through Jesus Christ when we're saved that he's talking about here. This is self-righteousness that he's talking about. This is the righteousness that humans earn for themselves, the goodness. And when we earn it, we become proud of it. Our goodness becomes our source of pride. Our self-righteousness becomes something we hang on to and depend upon. Well, look how good I am. And that's bad. It's the righteousness then of the Pharisees in the New Testament that Jesus spoke so much against. Then he also says we should not be overly wise. That might refer to the way that proud, overly righteous people use their wisdom to defend their righteousness. The Pharisees, for example, had all kinds of ways to defend their righteousness. All these little rules and regulations that made them feel like they were very good. It's possible he's referring to that. But it also could refer to the pursuit of knowledge at the expense of practical godly living. 
we can become so passionate about our theology that we fail to love our neighbor. We can become so filled with our knowledge and our doctrine and go to church constantly and study and learn and listen to speakers and and gather all of this information but forget to treat other people with grace and gentleness and kindness. Some Christians become so caught up in dotting their theological I's and crossing their doctrinal T's. Boy, they've got it all down pat. After all, you go to church for 30 years and you get all this information and you got it all down. And you're miserable and rotten to people. (laughs) You see, that's the kind of knowledge he's saying. Don't be overly wise with all of that stuff. We become rigid legalists bent on judging everyone else by our standards when we become overly wise. One writer put it this way, we are not happy because we are unforgiving and we are unforgiving because we feel superior to others. A judgmental attitude is a superior attitude. We feel superior to other people which is why we end up judging them and being critical of them. They don't measure up. We feel superior. We take pride in our goodness, at least as we measure our goodness. Isn't it always interesting that we pick and choose how to measure that goodness and then nobody else measures up to ours, you see. We look down our sanctimonious noses at other people because they don't measure up to our sense of goodness. And this is a problem for religious people as they look around at the world. But it is the way that lots of people live. In fact, most people, including us in this room, are way above average. Did you know that? Probably everyone in this room is way above average in our own estimation. (laughs) Few of us think of ourselves as average. Have you ever described yourself as an average person? You know? Psychologists call this state, this the state of illusory superiority. Psychologists have to come up with titles, I guess. It's also called the Lake Wobegon effect. Because if you're familiar with Garrison Keillor's fictional Minnesota town where all the children are above average, it simply means that we tend to inflate our good qualities and our abilities, especially in comparison to others. And all kinds of research studies have demonstrated this. For instance, when researchers asked a million high school students how well they got along with their peers, none of the students rated themselves below average. (laughs) As a matter of fact, 60% of students believed they were in the top 10%. 25% rated themselves in the top 1% of students nationwide. Nobody's average. You'd think college professors might have more self-insight. Well, 
When I did a study of college professors, 2% of college professors rated themselves below average. 2%. 10% were average. Oh, well, we got a 10% average rating. 63% rated themselves above average, while 25% of college professors rated themselves as truly exceptional. It's statistically impossible. One researcher summarized the data this way, it's the great contradiction the average person believes he is a better person than the average person. (laughs) Christian psychologist Mark McMinn contends that the Lake Wobegon effect reveals our, what is it? Pride. That's what it reveals. One of the clearest conclusions of social science research, he writes, is that we are proud. (laughs) We think better of ourselves than we really are. We see our faults in faint black and white rather than in vivid color, and we assume the worst in others while assuming the best in ourselves. That's human nature. Solomon warns us, don't fall into that trap because we will ruin ourselves in verse 16. Did you notice that? We will ruin ourselves if we fall into that trap of thinking ourselves too good of being overly righteous and overly wise. The Hebrew word translated ruin or destroy can mean to cause ourselves to be desolate or devastated, but it can also mean, and probably the Hebrew term here refers, is used this way, it means to be embarrassed, astonished, or horrified when you find out the truth. That's what he means by ruin yourself. What happens to people who are overly righteous and overly wise and depending on all of that stuff in themselves is that when the truth comes out, it's embarrassing because we're not all that good. And we have ruined ourselves by setting ourselves way up here only to find out we're way down here with everyone else. So we are to avoid the extreme of depending on our own goodness and pursuing an overzealous concept of righteousness because in the end no one will measure up, including ourselves, and we will be horrified when we see ourselves as we really are. And we work hard at not letting others see us as we really are too. Overly good people are judgmental in their holiness become harsh and mean in their dealings with others to avoid anyone seeing them as they really are. Among his many virtues, St. Francis of Assisi is known for his passionate embrace of poverty. Not only did he forbid his emerging order to own any property, he added this discipline for everyone who was a part of the Franciscan order. Let none of the brothers, wherever he may be or go, carry, receive, or have received in any way coin or money, whether for clothing, books, or payment for work. And there were very few exceptions he allowed if you were part of the Franciscan order. Money was anathema. If a brother was sick or if someone needed medical attentions, the brothers could beg for some money to pay for that. But other than that, they were never to even touch money. 
In fact, they were forbidden from even being seen with a beggar who was asking for money. Francis was passionate about this rule, and he was very jealous for obedience to it in the Franciscan order. He wrote, If by chance, God forbid, it happens that some brother is collecting or holding coin or money, let all the brothers consider him a deceptive brother, an apostate, a thief, a robber. So if you're even touching money or holding it, you're an apostate. It was a passion without any patience or grace. According to an early collection of Francis stories, a layman entered the headquarters of the order one day. He left an offering after praying there. He laid some coins near the cross. Later that day, one of the brothers was in cleaning and unthinkingly picked up the coins and put them on the windowsill. Later, the brother realized that he had violated the order and he heard that Francis had heard what he had done, and he was horrified. So he immediately went to St. Francis, and he implored his forgiveness for having picked up the coins. He told Francis to whip him for his penance, but that wasn't enough punishment for Francis. Instead, after rebuking the brother, he told him to go to the windowsill, pick up the coin with his mouth, carry it outside and deposit it in a heap of donkey's dung until it was completely buried using only his mouth. And thus learn the lesson that money is evil. The brother obeyed gladly. Folks, that is extreme righteousness. There is a zealousness there, and quite frankly, most of us are way on the other end. We're probably far looser than that. And there there certainly is a zealousness there, but it is an extreme zealousness, and it does no good in the end. You can't get rid of your flesh that way. It won't work. We will never be good enough for God. From the New Testament perspective, we realize that Christianity is not founded on our goodness at all, is it? You can't make yourself good no matter what you do or how zealous you are or how overly righteous you try to be. Our faith, our salvation is grounded on whose goodness? His. Now that's not a license to live any way you want. But it is a realization that we are saved by grace, not by our works, not by depending on our righteousness or how good we are. That's true for every one of us in this room. Joan sang it this morning. Nothing in my hand I bring. Right? We have nothing to offer God. We can't depend on our goodness. We accept his goodness by grace. And we live in moderation in this world.
because we fear the Lord. The fear of God leads us to live in moderation then. No extremes. Secondly, the wisdom of God leads us to live in humility. Verses 19 to 22. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Yogi Berra, former New York Yankee baseball player demonstrated his linguistic skills many times, earned him eight quotations in Bartlett's familiar quotations. Here's one when he was addressing the graduates at Montclair State University. He said these words, first, never give up because it ain't over till it's over. Second, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Third, Don't always follow the crowd. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Fourth, stay alert. You can observe a lot just by watching. Fifth and last, he told the students, remember that whatever you do in your life, 90% of it is half mental. Makes sense in an odd sort of way. How we think is the foundation for how we live. Wisdom strengthens a man more than ten leading citizens in a city, he says. That's how we think. We are better off with wisdom than all the political connections we can muster in this life. Now, wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is not the accumulation of facts or data. Wisdom is not knowing every theological detail you could possibly know, or any other discipline for that matter. You know, we tend to think that if we go to school and learn lots of information, we will be wise, but that's not wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to use the information we have in a God-directed way to live our lives as God wants us to live our lives. Wisdom is the ability to live successfully according to God's will. That's wisdom in the Bible. It's practical. It's every day. Wisdom then strengthens us, he says, because we are following God's will in our daily decisions, in how we live today, tomorrow, this week. We think right, so we live right. Yogi Berra would say, whatever we do is 90% half mental. Now, in verses 20 to 22 then, he lays out two wisdom lessons that we need to learn. And they both focus on humility. Now, the problem with humility is we all struggle with humility, right? And so the minute we talk about humility, we all know we're going to, we fail in this area many times. I do, you do. It's a struggle. And yet he lays out 
two lessons of wisdom that both focus on how to live in humility in this world. The first wisdom lesson is that nobody is good enough to never fail. Nobody is good enough to never fail. In verse 20, the preacher says, that there is not a single person on earth who does, not, who does good continually and never sins. Paul in Romans said there's none righteous, no, not one, right? There's nobody who lives on the face of this earth who never sins. Everyone sins. And that fact alone should teach us to live humbly before God and to live humbly before others, because we all sin. We all fail. Nobody is perfect. Nobody gets it right 100% of the time. We cannot achieve perfection ourselves, so we should not expect perfection from other people. You realize that perfectionists in heart are really miserable people in the end (laughs) because nobody can be perfect no matter how hard we try and it's why perfectionists often struggle with feelings of guilt and despair because even one failure messes us up we're not perfect and we certainly can't expect perfection from others around us in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, in our workplace. About the time we think we've arrived, we will be reminded once again about how far we have to go to be perfect. Our failures will keep us humble if we take them to heart. And remember this wisdom lesson that nobody is good enough to never fail. God wants us to be humble. (laughs) And so he has ways of teaching us that we fail, right? Through our failures to be humble. Some time ago, I had two weddings on back-to-back Saturdays. Now, at weddings, I always want to do everything perfect, there's a great pressure there because you can't... There's no such thing as a do-over for a wedding for that bride and groom. You don't get a second chance at this, right? So you really work hard to make sure everything goes perfectly. You get one shot at it. I felt good, real good after the second wedding. The two weddings were done. Pressure was off. Everything went perfectly. Many commented to me at the reception they thought the ceremony was beautiful, thanked me for all I had done. I felt good. We did it. It all went great. A couple left on their honeymoon. About a month later, I got a note from them. They had arrived home after their honeymoon, and they opened the mail, and in the mail was a letter from the clerk's office telling them that the marriage license was invalid. The minister, that's me, (laughs) had put down the wrong date for the wedding on the marriage license. So the license was invalid. (laughs) 
<laughs> Fortunately, they had a sense of humor. <laughs> I had to redo the license and get it all straightened out with uh, Augusta and the clerk's office and all of that. But it was a reminder of how easy it is to fail. I had accepted all the congratulations and appreciations of those at the wedding, but I'd failed in the very simple basic task of filling out a form, a form I've filled out more times than I can even count now. God's wisdom keeps us humble because nobody is good enough to never fail. The second wisdom lesson Solomon explains in verses 21 and 22 the lesson is that everybody should, overlo- everybody should overlook the put-downs of others. Now, this lesson will also help us to live humbly in this world. He tells us not to pay attention to everything that people say about us because we may hear someone curse us. Remember when we hear the curse that we have cursed others too. And don't take it seriously, he says. Now, the Hebrew word for curse here does not just mean to curse literally like in a swear word, all right? Certainly does include that. But in essence, the word means to disdain or despise someone, to put them down. It means to show contempt for someone. In other words, to put down a person by what we say. And the point is that we should not become sensitive about the criticisms of others. We should be quick to overlook the put-downs of others because we recognize that we have all too often been guilty of the same thing. So don't be overly sensitive about these. In fact, he says, don't even go out of your way to try and listen in, right? Because you might hear something that will then end up bothering you, and you're overly sensitive about it, and the criticisms and the put-downs. One Sunday morning, a pastor got up in the pulpit. He apologized for the Band-Aid on his face. He said, I was thinking about my sermon while shaving, and I cut my face. Afterward, he found a note in the collection plate. Next time, think about your face and cut the sermon. Ouch! (laughs) That hurts worse than the cut in the face. But preachers, we have to learn this lesson too. And I know that I've often been overly sensitive to things in the past. God is teaching me as he teaches you. Let's not get overly sensitive about the put-downs, the criticisms, the critiques that others might have because... I'm all too quick to critique other people, too. We get so caught up sometimes in the insults and the criticisms that are sent our way that we become obsessed then with what people think about us. I've been there. And it is a subtle form of pride. There's that word again. Our oversensitivity to What others say in our relationships is a form of 
Say it with me. Pride. Oversensitivity is a form of pride. Now, we don't like to think about it that way, but that's what, it's, what he's saying. In the sports world, they have an expression for athletes who are overly sensitive because the crowd yells all sorts of things at games and sporting events, and the word they use is rabbit ears. Don't have rabbit ears in life. Rabbit ears are the the athlete that's always paying attention to what he hears in the crowd and therefore plays poorly as a result. Don't have rabbit ears in life. Be able to take it and move on. Dave McLaughlin in Men of Integrity magazine tells a story of the time he went to a bagpipe competition. And of course, you assume that the Judges at a bagpipe competition love bagpipe music. How many of you have ever heard bagpipe music? Yeah. All right. So you know what it sounds like. The Scots, Bonnie Eagle, always bagpipe music. All right. He noticed that all of the judges, when they were walking around listening to the music and they had to judge it, were walking around like this with their hands over their ears. And he thought, that's really weird. How are you supposed to judge bad pike music with your hands over your ears? And then they told him. See, bagpipes make a sound because of the inflation and deflation of the bag that is just sort of a basic, low, groaning kind of sound. And... That's not the sound they want to listen to. What they want to listen to is the melody, the music that's being played on the bagpipe. So by covering their ears, they they stop the sound, the, the droning sound underneath, so that they can listen better to the music that is being played. Low level noise in life surrounds us all the time. The chatter, the jokes, the television, the, the conversations that go on in life. But a lot of it comes out of our mouths, doesn't it? Just that sort of ongoing sound of life. And there is so much chatter that sometimes we get caught up with the jokes, the criticisms, the put-downs, that we can't hear the music anymore in people's lives. We all need to learn to cover our ears, in essence, so that we can hear the music, the beautiful music that's coming from the lives of others. And I want you to cover your ears so you can hear the music that's coming from my life, too. Because otherwise we get caught up in all of this stuff. So don't be too quick to take offense. One medieval writer gives this advice that I think we can all take heart today. If you do not wish to become angry, do not be curious. If you ask what is being said about yourself and uncover unpleasant words, even though these words were said privately, you only make yourself unhappy. 
Those who are wise overlook many wrongs and often do not take them as such, for either they do not know about them, or if they do, they make fun of them and turn them into jokes. To pay no attention to injuries is a mark of magnanimity. The real, really great and noble soul listens to wrongs as securely as the larger wild animals hear the barking of small dogs. If we can learn to live in humility, if we can learn to laugh at ourselves once in a while, not take ourselves too seriously, we will be much happier in life. The perfectionist who takes all failures way too much to heart will spend most of his days in a miserable state. As the Christian comedian Ken Davis reminds us, lighten up and live. So Ecclesiastes teaches us that a life of contentment is a life of moderation, and a life of moderation flows from a spirit of humility. God wants us to live well-balanced lives because... He is Lord, and we live our lives humbly in this world. Pierre Salinger was President John F. Kennedy's press secretary. Salinger enjoyed telling the story of a conversation he had with the president on one of the plane rides, one of the uh, trips on Air Force One. Traveling on Air Force One, they had encountered severe turbulence that shook the plane, and Salinger briefly thought they were going to crash. It was that serious. When the aircraft righted itself, Salinger asked the president if he could imagine, President Kennedy, can you imagine what the news story would have been like if the plane had gone down and crashed? I can, Pierre, said President Kennedy. You would have been in all the front pages but in very small type. Why? Because President Kennedy would have been the big headline. As Christians, we live for Christ. The headlines should be about him, not about us. We're the small type. He's the headline. When we take credit for ourselves... We want the headlines in life, and that leads us to pride. It leads us to an excessive lifestyle. It's all about us. And even when we're hurt and we're angry, it's still all about us. But this world is not about us. Life is not about us. The church is not about us. It is about him. And when we live in humility, we will live in moderation, knowing that the headlines belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. Father, teach us to live our lives with that kind of humility, knowing that we struggle with our own self-righteousness, our own pride, our own tendencies to pursue this and that and the other thing because we want 
to get ahead. We want to be successful. We want, we want, we want. It's all about us, Lord. And help us to deal with our relationships in a way that is humble and moderate. Help us, Lord, to remember always that you, Lord Jesus, are the headline and we're the small type. In your name we ask it. Amen.